Uh, my name is Clay Mackey. If you're new tonight, uh, I met a few of you. This is the first time you've been here. And uh, I'm one of the pastors at Timberlake. Been here a few years. And uh, my wife Mary is over here in the, in the corner. You've got a bunch of boundless leaders here too that um, are mingled around. And uh, we're just excited to have you, like Bailey said. And uh, <clears throat> if you were here uh, on Sunday morning in our college ministry, you probably remember that uh, I gave my, 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 my opening speech, you know, my, if I could tell you one thing uh, as a new student speech. And I won't re-preach that sermon, so don't, don't, don't worry. Uh, but what I said is if I could tell the new Christian college student one thing, if I could just have one conversation with you, it would be to try to convince you from Scripture that you must prioritize the local church while you're in college and for the rest of your life, if you're a Christian, uh, especially while you're in college and definitely for the rest of your life. And that's because here in Lynchburg, going to LU, uh, when you come to a Christian university like Liberty, it's especially tempting to think that you're getting all that you need, spiritually speaking, from the university. It's tempting to think that, that you're getting everything from your Bible classes, from convocation, from your community groups, uh, you th- it's tempting to think you're getting all you could possibly need from that institution. And while we love and respect liberty, while we tremendously uh, are thankful for all the friendships, all the professors, all the positive influences, we have to recognize that it is not a replacement uh, for the local congregation. And I'm sure if you talk to LU administration, it was never intended to be a replacement for the local congregation. It's a university, after all. It's not a church. And so I spoke to a number of you after that message, and um, you know, some of you, this is old news. Uh, you're already convinced that the local church is a priority. You've already joined, and you're, you're ready to go this year. Um, but others are, were convinced after that sermon, really from, from Paul in Ephesians, that you need to make the local church a priority. But now, especially the the new people are faced with another question, right? So, like, how in the world do you pick one in Lynchburg when there are, you know, hundreds of churches? In Lynchburg alone, according to to one website, it looked like just the city precinct, okay? So, we're talking, when I say Lynchburg, I'm talking Lynchburg City. Just Lynchburg City, the last time I looked, had at least 76 established churches. 76. And that's just in this small city of Lynchburg. That means you could literally visit a church every Sunday for the next year and still not visit all of them. So you could, you could church hop the entire year. Don't want you to do that, okay? So how in the world do you choose one? Well, obviously, you have some criteria, even if you've never really thought that hard about it. Like, there's already some criteria probably in your mind. And when I talk with people, students often compare the churches that they visit to the church back home that they're from. It's kind of one, one standard, right? You're thinking, this is like my church back home, or this is not like my church back home. Um, and that's great, assuming that your church back home is biblical and healthy. Most often, though, students choose a church based on how they feel when they go there. You know what I'm talking about? They feel like they could really worship in the singing, or they feel like the Spirit was really working in that church. What's the problem with that criteria? It's a little subjective, isn't it? Kind of based on you uh, and and, and how you feel. And even some of the other qualities that people are looking for are really based more in their experience and their preferences rather in something that's objective. You know, the friendliness of the people. The vibe of the music, is it contemporary, traditional? The way people dress in a church, is it formal, is it informal? Things like that. People often adopt and then use this kind of experiential criteria, whether they know it or they don't, they use this criteria to choose a church. And you value something in a church because it's important to you, or you think it's important. But often what is not asked, at least when I initially have these conversations, is what you might think is the most important question. And it's not, what do I want in a church? The most important question is, what does God want in His church? 
It's not, do I feel the Spirit is moving in this church, but is the Spirit actually moving in His church according to Scripture? It's not the question, what do I think is important, but what does the Scripture teach is important? You see, God's been very clear about what He wants His church to be and to do. He's been very clear about how you can know that the Spirit is active in a congregation about whether or not a church is healthy or unhealthy. And the good news is that God desires to give you clarity from His Word so that you are equipped, if you're new, to make a good decision, to make a wise decision on which church you should commit to and prioritize during college. Okay? So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at a few indicators that a church is most likely healthy. Okay? You hear the caveat there? Some indicators that a church is most likely healthy healthy. There's some evidences of health that are based on what a church prioritizes. And it's my goal to give you some indicators that you could easily observe when you walk into a church, okay? Just like from day one, you can see them or not, or when you're poking around on a website, or you're having a conversation with a pastor after a service. It'll help you know what to look for almost immediately. It'll guide you into what kinds of questions would be the most relevant to ask, and what I'm saying is this, is this is not a full-blown ecclesiology, okay? I w- we'd be here for several weeks. I would love to teach that, by the way. Um, but that's not what this is, okay? So I'm going to leave some of you like, ah, you didn't say this, you didn't say that, you know? And that's okay. Uh, we can talk about those things. But this is, this is sort of the quick and dirty version, you know? This is like, I, I want to give you some diagnostics that you can take with you, the low-hanging fruit, the stuff a church will likely be doing if they truly revere Christ, if they really value His Word, and if they take His mission seriously. This is the Cliff Notes version, the the diagnostics. It's going to help you weed out churches that are probably not healthy and direct you toward churches that are. All right, and if you've been around and you've been through this, you're kind of yawning, unless you can recite these to me, the job is not done, okay? Because you have friends that you need to influence on the hall, at work, whatever, that need to know these diagnostics. And it's not just to get them to come to TBC. It's to get them involved in a healthy church. That's the goal. All right? So let's jump in tonight. We're going to look at eight indicators of health. Take a deep breath, because we're only covering four tonight. Okay? Eight indicators of health in a church. And again, this does not guarantee, does not guarantee that a church is healthy. And it certainly does not mean that the church is perfect. Because you're not going to find one of those. We don't have to leave if this church is going to be perfect. It doesn't guarantee health, but it's, it's some good indicators. It makes it much more likely that the church will be healthy. So look at the first four tonight, and then the last four next Thursday night. So one of the first places you should look at when you're trying to determine the health of a church is what? The pulpit, right? The preaching ministry of the church. Preaching and teaching is how God feeds his sheep. Okay? God creates his church by his word, by the gospel, and he sustains his church by his word. So God is very concerned with his word in his church. If sheep are going to be healthy, if you change the metaphor a little bit, the first thing you want to consider is the diet, right? What are they eating? Uh, And that's, that's what we're looking at now. What are they being fed, and how are they being fed? So a good initial indicator that a church is healthy is when you hear them say something along these lines, that they prioritize expository preaching. Expository preaching would be an indicator, again, not a guarantee, but an indicator of health in a church. Now, if that's a new phrase for you, have no fear, okay? I'm going to explain it. It might sound a little weird, right? Like, expository preaching? Like, what? What about just biblical preaching? Like, what, what, what are we talking about? Expository. I know this it sounded odd for me the first time I heard it years ago. And, and so let's just talk about what this means for a minute. If a church says that they do expository preaching on their website, usually they mean that their preaching focuses on explaining the biblical text. 
That's the idea of expository or exposition. It means to expose or to explain the meaning of the text to the congregation. The core conviction in exposition is that you don't start with you. You don't start with your own idea and then get Bible verses to prove your point. You start with the Bible's ideas and then you work out from there. You explain what the Bible means to the congregation, kind of from the, from the Bible out. That's the idea in exposition. But let's, let's dial in a bit on this, okay? Let's dial in a little bit on expository preaching and really flesh it out so that you know what you're looking for with good expository preaching. Okay? This kind of preaching aims to explain something in particular. Okay? It aims to explain what the author of Scripture, whoever it was that was writing that portion of Scripture they're in, what it aims to explain what the author of Scripture intended by what he wrote. So you can say it explains the author's intent. Good expository preaching has as its aim explaining what the author intended when he wrote. So in, in, in other words, if we're teaching from one of Paul's letters, like Pastor Farrell is on Sunday morning from Romans, that means that he's asking, we're asking, what did Paul, the author of that letter, what did he intend to communicate in this sentence, or in this paragraph, or in this letter as a whole? That's our concern. It's our first concern. What did the biblical author intend to communicate? If we're teaching from the Gospel of Mark, we're asking, what did Mark intend to communicate to us by giving us this story in the way he gave it to us. And as we do this, as we ask about this intent, we're unpacking God's intent. Why? It's his word. God's the one inspiring the human author and the intention of the human author. It was God who inspired that author to write what he wrote and to write it in the way he chose to write it. To write it. <laughs> Get my uh, verb tense right here. Good preaching, in other words, is not about preaching what I want or what I feel. It is about preaching what God intended through that human author, through those authors who wrote Scripture. Now, let's root this in some texts. All right? So... We're going to look in Acts. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the church, since its start, if we go back to the beginning, the congregation has always been devoted to the apostles and what the apostles taught. If you turn over to Acts 2.42, and I think I have it on the screen here as well, <clears throat> In this passage, we've got one of the very first descriptions of the church. Okay? Peter had just preached the first evangelistic message in Acts 2. And 3,000 people in Jerusalem had repented and believed in the gospel. You see that in, in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So an influx. And notice this description. How are they described? What's the first thing that Luke tells us, the author of this paragraph? What is the first thing Luke tells us? He says, and they, the church, was devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To other things as well, but the initial thing, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They listened firsthand to the teaching of the apostles, and they were devoted to that teaching. They understood the message. They listened to their instruction. So in other words, the first characteristic of this church is that they were fully on board with the intent of the apostles in their teaching. The apostles were preaching to them the content of the gospel and gospel truth, and, and they were fully on board 
with this. They were devoted to it. So how does this hit us in preaching? Well, eventually these apostles and those around them began to write their teachings down for future generations under the inspiration of the Spirit. They started writing this stuff down. They wrote Gospels detailing the life and ministry of Christ and His church. And they wrote letters explaining how the church should live and, and the doctrinal foundation. And these were eventually collected into what we call our New Testament. And their writings have been passed down to us today. And that means then that today, for our church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, just like we see here, just like the early church was, that means we have to explain what the apostles wrote. Tracking? We have to explain what they wrote. We have to explain what they left for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is the task of the preacher. It's not to come up with his own ideas and then try to retrofit Scripture to teach those ideas. It's just the opposite. We start with what the apostles taught. With what they wrote. And we explain their intentions, their inspired intentions, God's intentions, to the church. And so, expository preaching is aimed at something in particular. It's aimed at explaining the intention of the author of Scripture. But how are you going to know what his intention is unless you're familiar with his entire work? Right? So that's why expositional preaching typically works through entire books of the Bible. When you think about good exposition, not only is it aimed at the intention of the author, the biblical author, but it's also most typically, not always, but typically, good expositional preaching works through entire books of the Bible. Now you kind of hear the nuance, even in the way I say it, but, or the caveat, but we'll get there in a second. Good exposition works verse by verse, or chapter by chapter, or story by story, through entire books of the Bible. Because you realize we have an anthology of texts, right, in the Scriptures. We call this the Bible, like the book, but it's really the books. Um, it, it's an anthology of texts, inspired texts, that God has brought together for us with individual authors. And so as we, we do exposition, we want to understand these individual authors, and that means we have to treat their works as a whole. So just imagine if somebody found an email that you wrote to your parents yesterday, you know, they found it 200 years from now, <clears throat> and then they lifted one sentence out from your email, and then they did a presentation on it, but they didn't consult the rest of your email. And not only that, but they had a body of your emails, right? They, they found the email archive. They've got all your emails for, to your parents. And in fact, let's say they didn't know anything about why you wrote it or the situation in which you were writing it. They missed its context, they missed its background, they missed the occasion, the, the occasion they wrote it, what, what, what spurred you on to write that thing. They're very likely then to miss its meaning, the one sentence that they lifted out to give a presentation on, right? How are they going to know what that means without reading the rest of your email? In preaching, the easiest way to make sure that you're preaching the author's intent is to explain the entirety of what he wrote. If Paul were here today, he would be very happy that I'm telling you this, by the way. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul was very concerned that the congregation hear the entirety of the letters that he wrote to them? Listen to the way he ends 1 Thessalonians. I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers. Imagine if they only read part of it. You know? Only read chapter 1, because that was their favorite. Only preached chapter 1. Paul would be making them a visit, wouldn't he? Uh, I wrote, you know, I wrote four chapters, I wrote five chapters. Well, they didn't have chapters in those days, but you, you get the point. Paul didn't want part of his message for the church stifled or undermined by selective reading or selective explaining, right? 
Paul wanted to ensure the entirety of his intention made it to all the Thessalonians. But Paul is not the only author who cares about the church getting his entire message. The Apostle John didn't want anybody tinkering around with his final work either. The book of Revelation. Listen to this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. There's a lot of ways you can go with that in, in terms of like implications. But the point I'm making here is that John does not want anyone adding or taking away things from his inspired writings. And he started in chapter 1 and he ends in chapter 22. Now, I know that coming on strong and nobody wants curses. Okay, so let me caveat. This does not mean that we can never preach topically, right? Or even selectively at times. Because guess what I'm doing right now? I'm preaching a topic. You can still preach the intention of the biblical authors when you preach topically. Does that make sense? I'm confident that if I'm standing here today, Paul's going to agree. John's going to agree with me. I want the entirety of this thing read. Right? That's the intention of John. Intention of Paul. So even though I'm selective and I'm preaching topically, it's, it's formed out of a wider understanding of these authors and their works. All I'm arguing here is that preaching through entire books should be the normal practice of the church. What preaching through the entire books of the Bible does is that it forces the pastor, the one handling the word, to make sure he's handling an author's entire inspired work and not cherry-picking out his favorite truths. Truths are easy to preach. He's forced to teach the church the whole counsel of God. Things that are comfortable and things that are uncomfortable. Things that come naturally to him and things that don't. And as he does, he gives the church God's wisdom, God's inspired diet for the sheep. And you can't improve on it. And my point here is that if you find a church that's, not, that's doing this, that's doing verse-by-verse exposition, that usually means that that church has a high view of God's Word. And that's a great thing. Those pastors want their church to be exposed to the full counsel of God's Word to the entirety of what the Bible has to say. And they're going to force themselves to deal with all the texts there. And as a sheep, that's what you want. That's an amazing sign of health when a church has given itself to that kind of ministry. Now, before we leave this point, let me just say one more thing about faithful expository preaching, how you know it's healthy. This kind of preaching certainly explains the text, right? It explains the author's intent, and it works through the entire... Whoa! Come on now. There we go. And it works through these entire books of the Bible, right? But it also exhorts us it doesn't stop with just explanation. It exhorts us in how our lives should change as a result of the intention of the author. Expository preaching certainly explains the text, but it doesn't stop with explanation. It also exhorts us, or you might say applies the truth. In other words, the end goal of good expository preaching is personal transformation. The end goal is your maturation in Christ. It's not a dump of Bible data. Right? It's not a, just a, a backing up the dump truck to just pour that out on you to puff you up in pride. Its intent is to radically transform you into the image of Christ. To make you more like your sacrificial Savior. Preaching is healthy. Preaching is blessed by God. If the people who sit under it are becoming more and more like Jesus as a result, 
So you can say that faithful exposition doesn't merely explain the meaning, but it also exhorts the church toward obedience. It takes what the apostles wrote and it applies it to new situations facing us in the 21st century. It works out implications of these truths in real time. It unpacks what obedience looks like on the dorm or in a dysfunctional family situation or in a hostile work environment. And that's what the scriptures mean when it talks in the language of exhortation. All right, let's look at this. Notice, notice here's Paul talking, writing this letter to Timothy. He's holding the line. Paul's trying to get there to give him some relief because he's, he's dealing with a lot. Timothy's dealing with a lot in Ephesus. And he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So, okay, I want, you to, I want you to read these things you have, likely your Old Testament there that you've got. Read that to the congregation so they know it and then exhort them in it and teach them. Right? So there you have the teaching, which is the explanation of these things, and then the exhortation, the motivating them to believe these things, to live them out, to, to yield to them. So that means preaching can't just stop with explanation. It's got to move past that to exhorting the church. And so when you hear a sermon, as you're visiting churches, when you hear a sermon, ask yourself, not how did it make you feel or how did the pastor perform, but did you walk away understanding its meaning in the context that it's in? Did the pastor take the time to unpack it for you to show you what that original author intended when he wrote that passage? Or does he just totally skip that? Did he unfold the significance of that passage for you today and how it should change your life? Do you regularly feel convicted and encouraged after sitting under those messages? Or is the preaching kind of random? Right? Like you don't really know what the guy's going to teach this Sunday. He's going to do whatever the, quote, spirit leads him to do. Does the pastor seem to be kind of freewheeling it in the pulpit? Or just hopping from kind of hot topic to hot topic without, without really getting in the details of the text? Does he seem to just pepper some Bible among a lot of interesting and funny stories? That is not the kind of preaching that leads to health in a local church. And sadly, many have been malnourished. So when you hear preaching, listen carefully. If the pulpit is given to actually explaining the text of Scripture and applying it to your life, that is a sign of health, even if it's not flashy. If you leave with more clarity, if what he says penetrates your life, if it convicts and encourages you, then that is a good indicator of health and arguably the most important indicator of health that we're going to talk about. Because so goes the pulpit, so goes the church. That's not the only indicator. There are more. Okay? Let's add a second one, which is closely related, and we'll move a little faster through this one. We'll call this one truthful singing. Oh, we're going to get it. We're going to get it. There we go. Truthful singing. Not only should you consider the preaching, that's important, but you should also consider the songs the church sings. A healthy church is going to be careful about what she sings. A church that sings songs full of truth, they sing songs that accurately teach her about her God, that's an indicator of health. You can tell a lot about what a church believes by taking a look at the content of its music. And do you realize that God calls the church to sing not just to praise Him, as important as that is, he calls the church to sing as a means of instruction as well. In other words, God intends that we teach each other as we sing in the congregation. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul tells the Colossian church here. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So at a minimum, this text implies that at least one way we let this word of Christ dwell richly in us is not just through teaching, but also through singing. 
singing songs. And it follows then, if the word of truth is dwelling in us as we sing, that the song should be full of truth. Right? It follows that the Lord of the church cares what we sing. He cares who's writing the songs. He wants us singing truth and not error. It might be a really bad analogy, but imagine there's this girl you like, and you really want to impress her. True dude. Okay? So you get out your guitar. You learn the classic song, Brown Eyed Girl. You know the one I'm talking about? I mean, that's, that's a classic. If you don't know it, look it up. It's good. You practice it. You memorize the lyrics. And finally the day comes for you to make your move. You're sitting on the lawn. She walks by. You get her attention. Hey, I got a song I think you'll like. Whip out the guitar. You start jamming on that thing. Start belting it out. You look up into her eyes, and she's got crystal blue eyes. <laughs> Dang, you know, it's like, you missed that one. What you're singing is not true about her. Now, I know that's funny, but imagine then singing things about God that are not true about him, that are hazy or that are unclear that are open to error, written by a cult. That's not good. In years past, think about this, most of the church's music was written by pastors, theologians, or highly skilled and trained poets who knew the scriptures inside and out. They had a dogged commitment to the truth. Songs written today in the modern Christian contemporary music industry reflect, they reflect, what we see reflects the larger biblical illiteracy of evangelicalism. Both they and the songs they write are often more influenced by psychology, secular psychology, than Scripture. They know some of the broad themes of Scripture, particularly about God and His love and His mercy, But many of these bands make much of the worshiper, not of God. Here's a quote uh, from pastor and author Tim Challies. Here's what he said. He said, talking about worship, he said, We're surrounded by churches who treat God as if he's a buddy, not as if he's transcendent. They treat him as if he's chill, not as if he's serious. They treat him as if he's interested in our fulfillment, not in his glory. They treat him as if he's ambivalent about how he's worshipped, not as if he's been known to strike dead those who worship him wrongly. We are surrounded by churches that are content to manufacture a God who appeals to ignorant Christians or rebellious non-Christians. Their God is small and safe. And actually, when you look closely, you see that their God bears an uncanny resemblance to them. So what a church sings reflects what she believes. And it's what she'll take with her. Music influences and shapes the way we think and relate to God. And a church that takes care in what it sings, that screens its songs, that only puts the best in front of its people, that's likely a very good indicator of health. But churches that are not discerning, that just put the latest and greatest songs out there that are, that are topping the charts, you know, and the songs the other churches are singing, and they, they like how that makes them feel, that's not very discerning. So that's not a very good indicator of, of health, even if the preaching is quote-unquote solid. There's leakage somewhere in that church's leadership. So preaching and teaching, preaching and the singing will tell you a lot about a church, but that's not all you should consider you should also take a look at, like we just said, the leadership. Who leads the church? How do they lead? And that brings us to our third indicator of health, and that's when you see that a church has qualified elders. 
qualified elders is another indicator that a church is healthy. And that's just because the way the Lord has designed His church to work is influence flows from the top down. That's how the Lord designed it to function. And sadly, we've seen the devastation that comes to a church that has corrupt leadership, haven't we? It's just sad. You almost have to kind of ignore the headlines for a while if you you don't want to be discouraged in seeing pastors who are falling and, and other things. So, we see the devastation that happens when churches don't have qualified leaders. And so the Bible puts a premium on having these leaders, and having these qualified leaders called elders or pastors in the assembly. Also called over- overseers. All talking about the same office, same, same group of men. So let's look a little more carefully at how we know the elders of a church are healthy. Okay? You're just walking in, how do you know that? How do you, what are some indicators maybe that they, that they would be healthy? Well, first thing you want to be looking for, again, low-hanging low fruit, is that there's more than one of them. Right? That there are multiple elders. It's often, this is often called a plurality of elders. You'll see that on a website or in a church document. Plurality of elders. That's, that's usually a really good phrase to see in somebody's constitution. And it means that this, this one church has multiple pastors, multiple elders at, at, the, at the church, and all those elders are of equal status. When the Apostle Paul planted some of the very first churches in the Roman Empire, he made sure that each one of those churches had multiple leaders. Yes, I listed a text for you there in Acts 14. Um, got it up on the screen here. Let's read it together. When they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and, and to Antioch. That's where they had been before and had already planted churches. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And they came back, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here it is. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, you hear that language? They had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So did you catch that? That they carefully appointed not just one pastor but several pastors, multiple elders in each congregation. So that means then that shared leadership is the way that Christ singularly governs his church. I'm going to say it provocatively, there's one senior pastor, and that's the Lord Jesus. I know we use that title, we even use it here, and I think for good reason. Um, But Christ is the chief shepherd of his church, and he's appointed elders, plural, to govern his church. Doesn't mean they're all identical. Doesn't mean they all have the same experience level. There's diversity within the elders. But they're all elders. So if you see a church that has multiple elders or pastors that are equal, again, not that there's a pyramid and there's one guy at the top, but they're equal in authority, then that's a very, very good sign. But if you see a church that's basically, they got basically got one guy out in front, and I'm not talking about the small church that's all they've got. There's nobody else that's qualified. Okay, that's, that's a, put that in its own category, okay? Church of 10 people or whatever. All right, it's not what I'm talking about. I know there's clearly people that are qualified that could help lead this church, but there's only one guy. It's a pyramid. He's at the top. He's got his staff. That's dangerous. Okay? Dangerous. Be very careful with that because even godly elders need accountability. And that's how the Lord has designed His church to function. There's a lot more we could say about that, but we've got to keep moving. All right? Just low-hanging fruit. You're looking for multiple elders. Okay? Not just one dude. All right, here's another one. Mature elders. It's not that you have a lot of guys. It's that they have to be mature. Meaning they, they need to consistently exemplify their Lord. They are not perfect. But they are humble. They love like Christ. They're patient. They're gentle like their Savior. They're peaceable like Him. They're self-controlled like Him. And if this is a new concept for you, it might surprise you to realize that when it came to appointing elders in the church, the church leaders, 
Paul gave Timothy a pretty precise list of qualifications. He said they have to meet these things before you install them as a leader. And he tells them, he tells them that in 1 Timothy 3. I've got it on the, on the screen here. We'll just read this so you get the feel for it. He, first, verse 1, he's talking about how it's a good thing for them to, to be aspiring to this office. But he says, therefore, an overseer, that's the same, same concept, overseer, elder, pastor, all interchangeable. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The point here is that elders must be mature, proven, and godly men. But often in churches today, young men are exalted quickly and without much vetting or testing. They're given authority without the character to steward it. And they crash and burn. They cause casualties in the church as they go. So if you're visiting a church, ask about their process for vetting and testing their leaders. It's an easy question. How do you install an elder? Often, and sadly, these qualifications are ignored when leaders are hired in a church or when they're installed. And practically, if you see a bunch of young guys leading a church, again, low-hanging fruit, just be careful. Be careful. But if a church has a mix, especially if they have some seasoned men at the helm, odds are that that place is going to be growing in health. Okay? Now, that's not to say that the leaders in the church shouldn't be gifted or whatever. You know, you exalt these young men because they've they got gifts or, or whatever. doesn't mean they shouldn't be gifted. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the list we just read says the opposite. An elder, a pastor, should be gifted. So we could say it like this. They need to be gifted elders. There we go. Specifically, they should be able to teach. That's what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 2. In, in the list of qualifications we just read. In other words, they should be able to provide the expository preaching that we just described earlier in, in the lesson. If you visit a church, but you don't walk away with clarity in God's Word, that's likely not a place you want to be long term. If that guy's not helping you get clarity, their main teacher or teachers, if they're obscuring the text then that's not where you really want to be. They need to be gifted to teach, able to teach, and refute error. But qualified elders aren't just teachers behind a pulpit, as important as that is. They're also to be involved in your life. Okay, Healthy elders, then, are also involved. There we go. Involved elders. Healthy elders are involved elders. Meaning, these, these guys are leaders who know you. Leaders you feel like you can approach and talk to because they spend time with you. Leaders that open their homes to you. Remember, they've got to be hospitable. Leaders who pray with you. Leaders who bear your burdens with you and counsel you in the Scriptures. That's what the Apostle Peter is getting at when he calls the elders to shepherd the flock of God over in 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God is what he says. He uses this shepherding metaphor, which is a very hands-on uh, type role here. So look with me. Verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he, here he is. He's exhorting these elders to verse 2, shepherd, here's the command, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
The main verb, the main point of this paragraph is to shepherd the flock of God. He's calling them, he's using the shepherding metaphor, calling them to, to, to do this work. And as one, one pastor said recently, a shepherd doesn't just point to the food, you know, and say, go feed yourself, you know. Sheep, especially if the sheep's leg's broken, you know, there it is, it's the food's over there. You know, the shepherd, what does he do? The shepherd goes up, grabs the sheep, binds up its wound, takes it over there, helps feed it, if necessary. He leads the sheep to the food. If they don't digest it well, he helps nourish them. He protects them from wolves. If they're injured, he binds up their wounds. It's a very involved job. Very hands-on. The shepherd smells like the sheep at the end of the day because he's with them. They are, in Peter's words here, they're to shepherd the flock of God among them. Among them. This kind of elder stands in contrast to sort of the, the teaching only pastor, the, the pastor of vision or whatever in the, in the church. It's the guy who's whisked in and whisked out, speaks at conferences only, doesn't do counseling, doesn't get involved beyond his staff. That's not a biblical elder. Qualified elders willingly shepherd the saints at close range. They, are, they gladly are spent for the sake of the souls of the sheep. So willingly, not under compulsion. Eagerly, he says. Eagerly spend and be spent. They know the sheep and the sheep know them. So if you're visiting a church and it doesn't seem like the shepherds really know the sheep, that's a problem. Like, that's a problem. It's not going to be healthy. Also, look at the members and their attitudes towards their leaders. Do they respect their leaders? Do they trust them? Do they seem endeared to their leaders? Do the leaders seem endeared to them? Do they hold their leaders in high esteem? And if they resemble Christ, if leaders actually resemble Christ and they're doing the shepherding work, they will. So if a church is healthy, it will have qualified elders. And that'll be pretty evident the more you examine the, the leadership. So let's finish up tonight with a, with a fourth indicator of health, and it has to do with how the church helps its members. Okay, How it disciples them, or how it counsels them, you might say. It's usually a good sign... Again, low-hanging fruit. It's a good sign when you see somewhere on the website that a church practices biblical counseling. It doesn't have to say that on the church website. In fact, you might talk to some really, really solid, healthy churches that kind of don't claim the moniker of biblical counseling, not because it's a wrong moniker, but anyway. If you have questions about that, come talk to me, okay? Uh, Biblical counseling. Let's just keep it simple. All right, biblical counseling. If you see that on the website, it's usually a good sign. You can think of, of preaching, if, if preaching is a public ministry of the word, you can think of counseling as the private ministry of the word. Counseling is helping individuals overcome specific sin in their lives and experience transformation. And Paul calls this ministry a restoring ministry over Galatians chapter 6. It's a ministry of restoration. And this is a ministry that belongs to the church. I'll show you that one over there. Galatians 6. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, pretty open-ended, anyone in any transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So that immediately raises the question, who are the spiritual people? It's the people that are characterized back in Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. They're characterized by the Spirit and His fruit. Again, not perfect individuals, but mature individuals. Individuals who know how to walk by the Spirit. And, to, and the Spirit is bearing the, His fruit in their life. It means they're loving, they're patient, they're gentle. And those who are spiritual, i.e. the mature in the congregation should restore those who are ensnared, they're caught in a transgression, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when I say counseling, this is what I'm referring to. Helping people who are ensnared in sin to be restored back to usefulness to Christ. And here, clearly, Paul envisions this is a ministry for spiritual people to do to those on behalf of those who are ensnared. A healthy church will not only have this kind of interpersonal discipleship ministry, this interpersonal counseling ministry, if you want to call it that, not only will it have it, but it will be thoroughly biblical in its approach to it, i.e. biblical counseling. In other words, it will depend exclusively on God working through His Word to effect that change. A healthy church will reject any worldly wisdom that tries to help people overcome sin apart from Scripture. You hear that? A biblical church, a healthy church, a church that will care for your soul, will reject worldly wisdom that offers help to people to overcome their sin patterns apart from Scripture. Now listen to this. Just listen to what the Scriptures claim for themselves about how sufficient they are for this kind of change. The Scriptures declare that they are profitable and completely sufficient for our transformation. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. You hear that language? Complete. Equipped for every good work. What equips the believer? Scripture. For every good work. Peter says something similar in 2 Peter. He says that the Scripture... Is, 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 that is completely sufficient. Truth is completely sufficient for everything we need for spiritual life and for growth and godliness. He says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, meaning eternal life, and godliness. That transformation, becoming like God. And He's given us these things through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises. Through the knowledge of Him and through His promises. So that through them, through the promises and the knowledge of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may become godly. You may become transformed. And they're just getting this from their, their master, from the Lord Jesus Himself. Jesus said His disciples would know the truth. And a result of knowing the truth, that the truth would set them free from enslavement to sin. John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you're truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in the context of John 8, the enslavement is enslavement to sin. The truth liberates the believer from that enslavement to sin. The Spirit doesn't just save us and leave us floundering in sin, and quite to the contrary. The Spirit, working through His Word, through a faithful counseling ministry in a church, they actually, He actually begins to transform His people and He bears His fruit in their lives. Galatians 5. So why am I hammering this? Because sadly, over the last hundred years or so, the failure of the church to care for the souls of the sheep and that combined with the rise of psychology has led to a major outsourcing of this discipleship and counseling. It's outsourced. Many pastors today feel insecure and they won't counsel their members who struggle with things like anger or depression or anxiety, but will instead encourage them toward the professionals, toward psychiatrists, toward therapists, toward psychologists. 
Subtly, churches are lulled into thinking we need something more than the Spirit working through the Scripture to help people overcome their ensnaring sin patterns. And if you've had a rough experience in the church, if you've been in an immature church where something was grossly mishandled in your own life, and then that just complicates things for you, right? You probably felt that the church isn't equipped to handle the complexity of the human condition. We need something else that is able to handle the complexity of the human condition. And if that's you, I would love to speak with you about that. And again, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Not every issue that plagues humanity is a sin issue, right? It comes from sin. We're under this curse, the curse we're in because we chose to rebel against our Creator. But not all of our issues come from sin. Somebody has cancer, that's not, that's not a direct correlation to their personal sin, right? Many things plague us that can and ought to be fixed with medication. Medicine is a gift from God. It's a gracious gift to a world under the curse of sin. But what I'm talking about right now are clearly defined sin struggles according to Scripture. Things that God declares are sin. And the Scriptures claim that it is sufficient, completely sufficient, to set the sinner free and to help them grow in conformity to Christ. So if we can bring it back around, a healthy church will be thoroughly biblical in its counseling. It won't outsource you to a secular world. It won't try to integrate worldly wisdom with the Bible. A healthy ministry will shepherd you with truth and truth alone. But how would you know a church's view on counseling? Just ask one of the pastors after the service. (laughs) Just walk up and say, hey, do you guys do counseling here? Yes, no, maybe. If they say yes, what? How do you do it? And ask them this question. Do you integrate psychology with, with Scripture? And see how they answer that question. And then have them, hey, help me unpack that. Like, help me understand. Help me understand your answer. Do you integrate psychology with Scripture? Or maybe you could say this. If I were to join your church and I were to ask to be discipled, what would you do? How would you handle that? Or, maybe better, if I came to you and I said, I'm struggling with depression or anxiety or an eating disorder, how would you help me? You could also ask about their views of psychology and the level they integrated into their counseling, like I said. But if you hear integration, I know I'm probably stepping on a landmine, blowing off my leg. It's okay. If you hear integration, be careful. There's a lot of nuance there. We could talk about that. You know, again, I'm just 50,000 feet right now. But just be careful. If they're thoroughly committed to biblical counseling, though, you know, and it's a moniker, kind of there's, there, there's, it's on their website, that's a good sign of health. Okay, I'm over time. We're going to stop here tonight. Uh, I'll probably already raise more questions than answers, especially with that last point. Um, but if you have questions, I would encourage you to find one of us and talk. We, that's why we're here after, the, after this, this time period. Uh, Balanced leaders, raise your hand. A little heavy to this side, but that's okay. Find one of them that's near you and ask them all your questions about psychology. <laughs> they would love to field those. No. Um, we've got four more indicators to look at uh, next week, so come back for part two. And finally, I just want to wrap up by being clear about our motives here. Our only goal in this series is to equip you to choose a healthy church or to kind of ratchet up your convictions about some of these things as you talk with your friends um, about what, a church, what makes a church healthy. And it's a win for me if you don't just choose a church based on your personal likes and dislikes. It's a giant win if you take these criteria and apply them uh, to the churches that you're looking at. And obviously I think this ministry is healthy and I'd be delighted for you to call us home. We're definitely not perfect, but I, I would just encourage you, compare what you see here, what I'm teaching you, to what we practice. 
judge us by what we're, we're teaching here. That's, that's our goal. We want to be consistent with Scripture. But my main goal is I want to see you in a church that will protect you, that will care for you, and that will transform you during these pivotal years um, while you're in college. It doesn't have to be here. Um, it just needs to be one that's going to be safe for your soul. So that's our prayer for you. And um, come back for part two. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for just how clear you are in your word to us and how you love us. It is refreshing to think that you're the chief shepherd of our souls and um, that, we were, that we were brought forth even by your will, that you're thoroughly committed to us and that you are going to see us safely into your kingdom. And so we humble ourselves before you now and I pray that um, your spirit would bring clarity uh, to our hearts. Uh, in light of some of these truths that we've looked at, these scriptures we've looked at tonight, and that you would guide your people into all truth. Help them choose the ones that haven't yet. Help them choose a healthy ministry. And I pray that you would deepen the convictions of our own members here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.